Hello and welcome to the 30th episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact in their communities throughout Chicago and Illinois. For our return listeners, welcome back and thank you so much as always for your continued support. And if this is your first time listening to The Broadcast, welcome. We're always glad when you find us. All of this is possible because of you and our amazing sponsors and partners, including EvolveHer, a centralized digital hub that curates best-in-class resources, tools, and events to help advance women professionally and personally, and our regular podcast home, non-pandemic podcast home, 1871, Chicago's premier hub for entrepreneurs, innovation, and technology. I'm Becky Carroll, president and CEO of C Strategies, and of course, I'm your host, Return listeners know the broadcast has recently been focused on highlighting the intersection of issues that dominated the political and social narrative of 2020, racism, privilege, equity, social justice, corruption, and economic uncertainty. Our guest for our 2021 kickoff episode is someone whose work is at the very heart of all these issues throughout the course of her life and today, journalist, educator, and author, Deborah Douglas. Among many honors and distinguished titles, Deborah is the Eugene S. Pulliam Distinguished Visiting Professor of Journalism at DePaul University, a senior leader with the Op-Ed Project, and a 2019 Studs Terkel Award winner. Deborah is also the author of a new book released just now in January called U.S. Civil Rights Trail, A Traveler's Guide to the People, Places, and Events that Made the Movement. The book takes readers on a journey through Birmingham, Jackson, Memphis, Washington, D.C., and other places significant to the civil rights movement. So here to take us on a journey of their own is Deborah Douglas. Deborah, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, thank you for having me, Becky. Yes, I'm so excited this worked out. So again, welcome. You know, we've uh, been kicking off our podcast since the pandemic started by asking guests how they and their families have been doing during this crisis. So how have you been doing and how have you been handling all of this? It's been crazy, just like it has been for everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Because I teach at the university level outside of Indianapolis school closed so I left that area and posted up in Michigan at my mom's house and um but I had to move my apartment in Indy and and figure out find a place in Chicago because I wanted to come home so third state in a in the the span of a few months (laughs) right well of course welcome back home I know Chicago is your base of course so tell us a bit about you know, your journey as a journalist and a storyteller, and what are some of the projects you've been deeply involved in along the way, such as the op-ed project, which I think is amazing? Yeah, it probably sounds kind of corny, but I'm living my dream. (laughs) (laughs) I decided early on when I was eight years old that I wanted to be a journalist, and I went into the encyclopedia and read about, actually read about Columbia University in New York. They had a great, they have a great journalism grant program. And it wasn't until I got to high school that my mother knew I was serious about leaving her and going to New York. And she did some research and found Northwestern. And it turns out they have the best journalism school, Medill. <laughs> the only the best for me. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. So I've worked all over the country, really in the South, all over the Midwest. I even interned in Connecticut 
But I guess I'll just fast forward and say I've had a chance to do some really great work in Chicago, working for a niche publishing company for the Thompson Corporation. And then I went to the Sun-Times, where I did every job imaginable. Um, I was number two in the features department, number two on the editorial page, and I ran the library in charge of the, the uh, paper's most valuable intellectual assets. <laughs> Amazing. Well, so then, I mean, you've done... You're definitely living your dream from the time you were a young girl. So what inspired you to write about the civil rights trail through the lens of travel? Well, actually, I got an opportunity to write about, to write this book, to submit a proposal and to have it selected. I worked uh, with another uh, longtime Chicago writer. She's in Nashville now, but Margaret Lipman was in Chicago for many years. She wrote column for Cranes. For many years also, she actually hit me to the idea that Moon was interested in producing something on the newly designated Civil Rights Trail. It was newly designated in 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, Southern travel bureaus realized that they, they had something special on their hands and they weren't telling the story in a cohesive narrative. And so she, she let me know that there was an opportunity. Now, it made sense at the time. Well, it, it always made sense for me because I'm a great migration baby. Born uh-huh. in Chicago, started school in Detroit. I, I, went, um, I had part of my schooling down south outside of Memphis. My father is from Mississippi. He ran a business for many years on the west side in Austin. So like I'm like, my footprint is really all over the place of the story. You got your blood in almost every state. <laughs> yeah. So I'd never just work one job. So for the past three years, up until this summer, I was the managing editor of MLK 50 Justice Through Journalism, hmm. which was a Memphis-based, uh, which is a Memphis-based uh, online publication that covers poverty, power, and justice. So I was working on, and we, we started MLK 50 with the idea that we would um, cover the, the year before the 50th commemoration of Dr. King's assassination in Memphis. And we did such a great job that we got more funding and we were able to continue to grow and, and just really just do some really great in-depth work. So I was already in that headspace, you know, um, thinking about the implications of the civil rights movement, because we were taking the conversation that started then, and we were fast forwarding to now to see how it was playing out and to see what work needs to be done, but doing it through a journalistic lens. And so when the travel opportunity came up, and already in a a way I was traveling in my mind because I'd be sitting in my apartment in Chicago covering a confederate statue rally in memphis (laughs) (laughs) or you know leading the team that was on the ground covering the confederate statue (laughs) right 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 (laughs) wow so you know you're obviously a writer a journalist you're a professor so you get to teach what you love as well Uh, but of course you are an experienced global traveler too So how does this book combine your profession with your love for travel and immersing yourself in in the cultures you visit uh, along the way? Well, yeah, I've been um, blessed to be able to travel to a lot of wonderful places. I've done a European tour. I've been to France a couple times. 
I have been to Africa, I think, five times as a tourist, as a person studying HIV and malaria on a fellowship, mm-hmm. with the Kaiser Family Foundation, and teaching. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and thanks to Northwestern, I was able to go to Karachi, Pakistan for two weeks to teach best practices there to professional journalists. Oh, wow. I'm still connected to my students there. We, you know, talk through social media every day. And when I went to London in early 2019 to see a, a friend who's a Steppenwolf player on the National Theater stage, I actually met up with some of my students from Pakistan who were studying in, um, studying in London. And one of the students was somebody for whom I wrote the recommendation to get them in the program. So <laughs> I really like go- just going to different places and meeting people. I think I could place like being in first grade as the first time I realized I had an interest and an affinity for people from all places and all types of backgrounds. Really? What was that? We were reading about kids in in India. We were learning about Indian girls and we were learning about the red dot and some kids at the table, they couldn't take understand the, the idea that there were little girls somewhere around the world who looked and acted differently than the rest of us. And I remember that I just wanted to know more about these little girls. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought if they could, if I, if they would just shut up and listen long enough to, to, to absorb all the information that they too would want to know more about other kids, but they didn't. They just only cared about what was in that little space in that little room. But oh, my cool. mind had left that room already. So you've been a crusader for travel and other people's for a very long time. (laughs) Well, I definitely think that everybody's story should be centered and not just some people's stories. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you spent, speaking of youth, you did spend much of your youth, I think, off and on in the South. So how did your connection with your family there and the culture come into play when writing about the Civil Rights Trail? Well, it really just helped me write from a position of authority. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can read a million books about that period. I covered the mid-century civil rights movement. Someone would argue that that movement continues to this day. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so, but I also had the experience of, you know, being in those spaces and sort of living with the echoes of the, of that time. I was born on the tail end of the movement. And so I, w- I grew up in the implementation phase, I would say, of the policies that were enacted during that period. And um, so when I think about it, I think about really, <laughs> my whole life has been a big social experiment. And I'm, I'm not just the only one, me being emblematic of Black people. <laughs> right. And also my life is a miracle. <laughs> I'm the granddaughter of sharecroppers and my parents picked cotton as their, their teenage jobs or their, you know, childhood jobs. They started working very, very young. And um, I have been able to grow up and be in a space where I could think about what I want and then really just press forward to saying that I'm going to go do what, what it is I want to do, not what society prescribes for me to do. So everything about my life is a miracle. And I th- think this book is a testament to the miracle that so many of our lives are represent. That's so amazing. <laughs> I um, have to imagine that 
you know, you can't help but like draw from the energy of your family and your ancestors when, you know, you were walking these streets and visiting these places that you must have, you must have felt them with you. I did. I also felt like, you know, how when you're around your elders and you feel like you have to like, you know, just straighten up and just behave be about a certain way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And be about the business. And the more and more I learned about people who were involved in the movement, the more and more I felt like a big slacker. <laughs> <laughs> because these people, you know, they, they managed to go to college. <laughs> and not only that, but get advanced degrees. So many of the people who, were, who led the movement, yeah, they were fearless. <laughs> you they know, bore the brunt. They, yeah. they lifted everything up while lifting themselves up. Yeah, they, they actually, they knew they were going to face violence. That's just an idea for me, but this is a real right. thing for these people. And they, and they led a movement and they have families. I haven't been able to do all of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and most of them were in their 20s. <laughs> yes. They were young. Yes. So I, I, felt the, I felt the presence of that, the weight of that responsibility, put it like that. And that in, when I was in Charleston, I, I really reflected on, you know, when we were first brought here <laughs> and what that must have, what that must have felt like and knowing that this was, this was your lot in life. And right. then you learn about people who resisted, you know, we haven't really learned about the depth and breadth of resistance like we should have that that just hasn't been taught to us i think the idea of us being empowered with that a resistance narrative is something that is scary to the powers that be mm -hmm. but that was a revelation that that i carried with me throughout my travels well you know i i remember when we first talked about the book and i was like wow it's a heck of a year to write uh, a book that combines travel and the civil rights trail, given everything that was going on. You know, part of your journey in writing the book was done amidst both the pandemic and this national movement for racial and social justice. How did that like impact your research and experience? And do you feel like the protests and unrest um, over the last several months as you were writing this came into play as you were putting your words to paper? Yeah. Well, I've been writing about equity and justice for a very, very long time. Yeah. And one of my areas of specialization is um, health and wellness coverage. But then uh, when you consider the, the fact that I was um, editing and writing for MLK 50, I always knew that the civil rights movement or the, the principles and the values were alive and well and embedded in, in almost every conversation I have about what it means to be a member of an underrepresented group or underserved group in this country. I knew that, but I don't think it's going to be as much of a hard sell to get other people to believe that this story and this trail, this trip that I talk about is relevant in our lives now, not only as a travel experience and as an experience to celebrate the joy of the South and to celebrate the beauty of the Black experience, but also as sort of a civics and a civics primer um, mm -hmm. that should encourage you to really think and reconcile where you stand on the issues today. 
oh, I think your book could not come at a better time. Because I think people will will find it interesting, intriguing, relatable, because you're making you're making the story of the movement through the trail relatable through your your own travels from you know one historic location to another. And especially now, which I really I really believe is a time of awakening for many people who are outside of the black community who, and not everyone, unfortunately, but I do think a lot of people have had their eyes made wide open over these last several months and are learning to accept their, their own complacency in where we've come and want to try to do something about it. And I just think we get through this pandemic, especially like this book is going to be an incredible guide for people who want to like really connect the future to the past because it's all connected really. It is. And, you know, so you're, you're speaking of that, you know, your book is this unique intersection of history meets, you know, travel. So what is your hope that people walk away with after reading it and how it might inspire or inform them in ways that they, they haven't been before? Well, this book could have been so much thicker because there was so much more to write. <laughs> right. And I really feel like it's a really great overview. It's so much more than a travel guide. It's a mini yeah. history book. Yep. So I hope that people find various points of entry to do a deeper dive into topics and people that they didn't know that much more about. And I hope people actually look around and start to value the history that's right in front of us. Just the idea, for example, the, the, uh, the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley House in Woodlawn, the idea that is right there in a the neighborhood that so many of us, you, you can know, go see it history right in front of you. It's just right there. Or the fact that we have civil rights icons in our, in our, in our neighborhoods and our communities like Diane Nash, she's up in age right now, but she's here. Mm-hmm. I think that it should drive people to go talk to their grandparents and ask them about what they did in the movement or what was their experience of the movement. Even if they weren't like active in the movement, but what was their experience of it? What was the quality of the conversation in their family and in their neighborhood? Like really use this as, as, as a way to explore that connective tissue that makes up our families and communities. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible conversation starter. It's, you know, something that like a book that you can read through and share with your family and kind of transcend the generations and connect the generations really in doing so. I love, I love that idea of trying to use it to start conversations with elders who were either smack in the middle of it or on the periphery or just living during that moment in time. Because even if for whatever reason you couldn't be on the streets doing it, there's no way that it still didn't, you know, touch you and impact you. Right. So I know that when you did your travels, I mean, you had very specific locations that you wanted to see and things that you had set out to do proactively, but you also had met some unexpected people and places along the way. So what were some of those kind of unique, unexpected stories and encounters during the travel you did? Well, in Selma, Alabama, at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, is a dude named Columbus. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hey, Columbus is just at the at the edge of the bridge, full of information. Anything you want to know, he can tell you all about the movement. <laughs> he can tell you all about the people. He does not ask for any 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 money. If you want to give him a donation, that's fine. <laughs> Doesn't require a donation to give you the lowdown. <laughs> yeah, he is not there in any official capacity. Just the dude at the bottom of the bridge, and he's so sweet and kind of cute. Um, <laughs> And or the idea that the that Edmund Pettus himself was a Confederate general, and we got to walk across this doggone bridge. The, the idea that metaphorically they had to cross the bridge named after the Confederate to walk to get to Montgomery to demand freedom is just amazing when you think about it. Um, and then when you actually walk it, yes, you're like and, I'm in the very same steps of all these other people. Yes. And, you know, there's this, this debate to, to rename the bridge after John Lewis. So there's that. What other surprises? Other living icons that I, that I met, I interviewed Elizabeth Eckhart. She is the, the girl in the photos of the Little Rock Nine, the young girl. Oh, wow. Trying to get into school. Yeah. And the backstory on Elizabeth. Maybe you should read the book. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for mine. It still, still has not come in the mail yet. It takes, takes like six days, six more yeah. days. <laughs> so Elizabeth did not get the message that they changed the staging area where the students would meet. So she, she showed up to school and she, was, she, tried, she, was, she found herself trying to get into school on her own and she couldn't that day. Um, wow. It traumatized her for a lifetime. Oh um, I met foot soldiers. In the movement, those were the little children who, who marched and participated in the movement. And they just didn't march. They didn't show up and just start walking. There was like a full educational process around why being a part of the movement, being an activist was important, and what were the, the, the principles that undergirded their, their activity. Joanne Bland is a noted tour guide in Selma, and she allowed me to go on one of her tours with her. And the tour that she was leading was a group of kids and their chaperones from Washington, D.C. And I met this woman, Martha Bostick, who's now like this deep Facebook friend of mine. So I was like <laughs> friends along the way. And then um, in Little Rock, Sybil Jordan, she was, she's unofficially the Little Rock 10. After, after Little Rock 9 finally got in, they actually canceled school the next year. And so the first year that school was back, back in session, and black kids were allowed to go into the high school. Sybil was one of those kids. And she's had a long story career, including some time spent in Chicago. And she's retired now. And she just really took me under her wing. So now she's like family to me. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so just the living icons and just meeting people who just gave so much for us. Well, then what were, I mean, it's kind of hard probably to boil this down to like two or three or four, but like, you know, what were maybe three or so stops along the trail that really stuck with you the most and, and why? I would say being in the Mississippi Delta on Money Road outside of the ruins of the store that Emmett Till was in the day uh, that Carolyn Bryant, the yeah. original Karen. Uh, yeah, the original I, Karen, Yes. <laughs> Um, because that's a t that's a solitary experience, and it's not curated or narrated. 
you're just out on the road by yourself dealing with the ghost. Um, and then um, Little Rock, because of the power, powerful story that is a Little Rock Nine, but also because the people in Little Rock were so nice to me in a lot of layered ways. <laughs> they literally took care of me and offered me jobs and offered to help me find a place to live. <laughs> <laughs> And also the fact that Little Rock is is in the South, but it's also some other things. It's like the doorway to the West. And it's also a little bit Midwestern. Yeah. It feels different. And when you start asking yourself, why does this feel different? Having lived in those places or worked in those places, I've run programs in Texas for many years and I have worked in Missouri you know, you get, a, you get a sense of a feeling of something. And so Little Rock felt like a lot of different places. And that made me reflect on the loss of opportunity that, that forced people to engage in activism and the civil rights movement and, in, and even before that in, Ar- in Arkansas. Because they could have easily, you know, embraced the, the ethos of the West or and became more relaxed like the people in the Midwest but in so many ways, they the powers that be decided to embrace the values of Southern obstructionists and Southern racists. And then I would have to say D.C. because it's all the things. <laughs> <laughs> right. D.C. because the African-American Museum is there. Yep. And it's just gorgeous. <laughs> I could just, you know, I could live in there. And um, because when you think of like the policies and laws and just all the icons that have used the city as a staging area, area, area to, um, to air our concerns, yeah. all roads lead to D.C. Whether, yeah, it all happened there. Yeah. Whether you're at the Supreme Court or on the National Mall or in any number of museums. Well, speaking of D.C., and I know we'd, we'd say that maybe we'd be able to talk about this organically, but as we are taping this broadcast our nation's U.S. capital is being overrun by terrorists. Um, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's unnerving. It's, it's disturbing. This is not in any way even close to the, the, the marches for, for civil rights, women's rights, other marches to you know, empower and and bring change for marginalized communities. This is uh, this is like a last defense of, I think, a last stand almost for like white supremacy, especially when you look here um, at the screens. I don't know what thoughts are like, as a journalist, as a storyteller, as a writer of this book, like what thoughts have been going through your mind as you know this has been going on in the Capitol and, and in such, you know, a storied, a storied city as Washington, D.C., especially it's just its impact on, on the civil rights movement. I mean, this is a part of the through line um, that my book lives on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, and, it, and today represents a backlash of so, so many of the events um, and protests that I discuss in the book or, you know, so many of the decisions that I write about in the book. And I don't think that is that it is racism last stand. I don't. I hope that we don't have more of this going on. But I think that what I learned 
I mean, I knew this instinctively, but then it was reinforced over and over again on how structurally our society has been programmed and how the movement actually did the research and had a lot of the answers to how we could rewire our society in a way to be more equitable. Yeah. Just this past year, we've been talking about essential workers and the fact that they don't get paid a living wage. And Dr. King talked about a living wage. He talked about universal basic income. You know, this stuff is not brand new. (laughs) Right? You should have listened. (laughs) Yes. Oh, there are so many, so many policies, uh, well, ideas, you know, that had been proposed during the height of the civil rights movement. I'm like, wow, we're we're this many decades later and, and we still have not met the challenge to... So much. Imagine if we had listened to the youth and listened to the leaders then where we would be today. Yeah, well, think about it. Last year, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that you cannot discriminate against LGBTQ people at work. They decided that that particular group was covered under under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yeah. Right? And that is kind of big movement wins. And here it is, uh, continuing to be a gift to us to this day. They weren't going to include women in that act. And cynically, women were at it. (laughs) I know. They're part of the leadership. (laughs) Yes. It was a battle of cynicism that got women at it because someone thought that it it surely wouldn't pass if you add women. Like, how dare women win? (laughs) And here we are continuing to celebrate first for women. Locally, University of Chicago has its first woman provost. You know, I know first after all these years. Yes. And we have our first woman vice president who's poised, you know, to become president. If, if these things go the way these things tend to go. Right. Yeah. We're on the precipice of many things. I, I hope after 2020, we're on the precipice of, of, of very good things. And we've had a, a mostly good start to 2021. Today is not among them, but I'm hopeful that this is uh, this is going to be a day in history and not more than that. So we can turn it back to something that's um, a little bit more of a fun topic and something that I certainly like to talk about. Um, I always feel like for me, the best part of traveling is eating because I have an excuse to eat whatever I want, but especially in like wonderful places that are known for having amazing food. So tell us about some of the food you got to try along the way and what were, you know, some of the, I'm sure there's so many must stop, but were some of those must stops that you think folks need to check out and using your book as a guide to both learn and eat their way through about the trail. So it's funny. I was looking at Facebook the other day and someone posted I'm going to go get some of that good up north food that no one ever. <laughs> no one ever, right? <laughs> and Sadly. I was laughing with my mom about that because by virtue of going to the South, I'm implicated into the best food that you can eat in this country. And, if, and, you, and you can easily do it healthily if you want to. I didn't. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you can. I've lived and worked in the South. I started my career for first two years in Mississippi. And, you know, I would I routinely would go follow the people that I cover, county commissioners and state senators and people like that, and eat a plate of field peas with cornbread so you can yeah. eat healthy on the road. But I didn't. I availed myself of every chicken wing I could find. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been there right alongside with you. You're only going to do something like this in its entirety once, so you might as well have the full experience. <laughs> Exactly. So I would have to say that the chicken wings at the Busy Bee Cafe in Atlanta, where Dr. King liked to eat, mm -hmm. uh, they were really good. And so were the ones at Pascal's in Atlanta. Um, to get my quick fix, um, I often have to go to the Atlanta airport to get to other places. Uh -huh. And so there's the Pascal's in the airport. <laughs> Ooh, that's dangerous. <laughs> and in Memphis, there is a place called Chef Tam's. Tamara, she's a chef. And you just know that she loves loves cooking and being really creative. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite things is her deconstructed peach cobbler. Um, Ooh, deconstructed, yum. Nachos with the peach cobbler stuff all poured on top. It's so delicious. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And then I went to Senators in the Delta. I was actually visiting the cotton gin where they got the big fan that used to weigh down Emmett Till's body. When, before they dumped it into the river. Oh my God, wow. That gin has been turned into a museum. And I met, I met a woman and who works for the congressman there. And she was a little suspicious of me first because she's so used to, to journalists and other people dropping in and, and being extractive of the story of their home. And yeah. so once she you know, asked me a bunch of questions to make sure I was cool and that I was gonna be responsible and not extractive, you know, we became friends. And so she's like, well, I'm going to get something to eat. And I'm like, I'm hungry. And let me tell you where I want to go. So I got her to take me <laughs> to Senators. Uh, yes, in the Delta. And that was good. <laughs> oh, amazing. Gosh, we need to like get a couple places in Chicago that just can redo, <laughs> at least to some extent possible, what you can get. In some of these places, I I would. Eat. I mean, we do have some really great places in Chicago, actually. But we can we can use a we can use a, a few more because there's clearly not enough to go around. Well, I'm thinking Nita's gumbo now is takeout, but the gumbo is just really delicious, and so so are the gumbo wings or the wings again. And I'll have mm. to say that growing up in and around Chicago, I family always ate at Gladys's, and so um, a relative of Gladys at one point on the four-way grill in Memphis. The four-way is called now. And the four-way is in my book. And that food is always delicious. I always go to the four-way. At one point, I interned in Memphis, and I ate at the four-way every day because I lived in a broomy house. Uh -huh. And I couldn't really cook. <laughs> and so $5 a day, I could go eat there and know that I was eating healthily and something good. Oh, amazing. Well, Gladys, is, is it still... No, it's around? been a while. Yeah, yeah. I seem to remember, like, when it came down, it was kind of, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why. Okay, we're, we're going to, like, do a little side project here in the near future. <laughs> we're going to recruit some, like, new chefs to come up here after we get through the pandemic and start something new and amazing up here in Chicago. I don't know. It's like, for a lot of people, you learn about the history of incredible moments in time, like the civil rights movement through 
you know, movies and documentaries and other media as well. I'm sure like for anyone, I know like me, I sometimes just think about it. It's just a range of emotions you can feel, but like for you, like how did this experience impact you in ways that other travel did not and like how you'll look at the work that you do moving forward? Yeah, so I was really moving fast <laughs> in that I had to teach a couple times a day, every day. I, you know, I had to work on the, this news and information site. And then sometimes I work with the op-ed project coaching underrepresented voices to speak out into the public conversation by getting published or going on radio or television. And so you can always have a lot of things swirling about, but then there are these times where you sit and you pull together all of your notes and you start sketching out the chapter. Or maybe I've been in a situation where I've been doing a deep dive on building a timeline where I have to really validate a lot of competing facts to make sure I I put the accurate information in the chapter. And then once you take stock of like the actual story of the struggle that you're talking about and documenting, Mm-hmm. And you look up and like breathe for a second, you realize that you're holding all that tension in. It's, it's a lot. It's very emotional. Yeah. Um, and so you can have a range of emotions. <laughs> you can be angry. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you can be sad. You can be surprised. You know, it's definitely something that, especially outside of curated spaces like museums, it's something that you really need to think about. How, do you, how you talk to your children about what they're about to see and how to process that information, how you are going to process it as a family or how you're going to process it with your group of friends. Yeah. Because it really is an emotional journey that has everything to do with how we're living right now. Well, I'm incredibly grateful that you were able to make time to do this because the moment I saw that you wrote this book, I was like, I have to have her on my show. So like everything, all good things come to an end, including this podcast. And again, I'm really grateful you were able to make time to go on this. And I'm excited to see how, you know, the book debuts. And I know listeners can learn more about you and contact you through your website, which is debofficially.com. Can you also just tell our listeners where they can learn all about your book, The U.S. Civil Rights Trail, and purchase a copy for themselves or others? Absolutely. So they can find it uh, at Bookshop, which is online, bookshop.org, which supports independent booksellers. And then it's also at Barnes & Noble and, of course, at Amazon. Wonderful. Well, Deborah, thank you again. I'm really glad we were able to connect and I want to stay connected with you. So maybe I'll have you on again, but you're going to be added to uh, my, my list, so to speak, when I'm engaging and reaching out to folks in the future. And I look forward to chatting with you again. And I'm um, excited to see where this book takes you. So thanks again for being on the show. Thanks so much. You take care. Thank you. As always, the broadcast is brought to you by Sea Strategies, a strategic communications and public affairs firm bringing passion and veteran experience to help clients meet their business goals. Thank you again to our sponsors, Evolve Her, and to our regular podcast home, 1871. The broadcast is produced and edited by Tweed Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nicholas Fedora. Additional production support provided by Emma Kluver. 
Music by Christy Bennett's Boomy Gypsy Project. And to learn more about Seed Strategies and the broadcast, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Seed Strategies Shy. So come, let the world.